You're listening to Media on the Radio, the podcast that features conversations with media professionals and highlights the unique stories of how they broke into the industry. Today on the show, we have Jim Block from Blockhouse Media. Jim Block uh, is an audio engineer, and he's worked on some notable productions, including America's Most Wanted, which he talks about. I think of myself uh, foremost as a, as a creative person, as, as, a, as a designer, as a creator, and I use uh, technology as my tools to net what I hear in my head. We're at a table and maybe we're having coffee, so my next, my next part of the onion would be what's going on on the table. Okay, then what's going on further out in the room? Is there a clock on the wall over here? Is there, you know, this going as a kid coming in and out or a dog scurrying left and right over here? He's also been involved with Arlington Independent Media's build-out of our audio production room, as well as the radio room for WERA. Thanks to everyone who's been listening. Our numbers on iTunes have been doubling every month, and really appreciate it. Please give me a like on Facebook, and also follow me on Twitter at Media on Radio. Well, I went to college. I went to uh, VCU down in Richmond, and my first two years there were as an actor, an acting major, and and that was sort of a a big leap of faith for myself and for my parents. Uh, at the time. And, um, you know, I got to about the end of my sophomore year, and I really loved the theater. I loved all aspects of it. You know, for all those who are into theater, know that when that gets in your blood, it stays in your blood. Toward the end of my sophomore year, I realized that I wasn't that good. You know, I watched a lot of my other friends who were a lot better than I was and kind of came to that self-realization because to even begin to make it as an actor, you need to be very good. And then you need to be lucky on top of that. And I didn't have the very good portion, so I had a little come-to-Jesus meeting with myself. And I found that I had a really kind of keen interest in technical theater and tended to gravitate toward lighting and thus toward sound. And uh, then I got associated with the Virginia Museum Theater down there, which was a professional theater at the time. It was part of the Virginia Museum. And they had a professional theater and uh, was their resident line designer for uh, two, two and a half years, three, three seasons. And just sort of started that. And then I kind of faced that decision, okay, what are you gonna do? You know, now that you've decided to do that, you either are gonna do the New York track or you're going to do the L.A. track, you know, I mean, because that's where the that's where the work's at. And so I decided, no, I'll just do the Washington, D.C. track. So it was back up here where my parents were and back up here where my friends were. I said, well, I'll just I'll just try to find some work up here. And I uh, was hired by the Folger Theater as a sound as their sort of sound technician. And as a result of that, the neat thing about Folger is there uh, they did original scores for all their productions. So I was associated with their sound designer or their their uh, composer, Bill Penn was his name. And he would use a studio, local studio up in DuPont Circle. And so I got to know everybody up there. And then when my time at Folger ended, uh, they asked me, do I want to be a sound engineer? And I was like, all right. You know, so I went in, I went in uh, with them as a, just as an engineer for hire. I loved the people I was working with, but then the president of the company, I remember coming to work and he just left. 
and sort of just we showed up. The president was there. There was a long list of notes of sorry I did this and sorry about this debt and sorry about that debt. And and we, we were all just, you know, we weren't business owners. We were just worker bees, you know, and uh, <laughs> and he left this huge pile of crap for us to work through. So the whole shebang went up for uh, auction. SB, wow. The SBA foreclosed on it. And, I, I just watched uh, most of the vinyl series on HBO. Did you see any of that? No, I haven't. It, it's kind of, it's interesting, but it's kind of like, and it's Martin Scorsese and there's good acting and good directing, obviously, but it's like, I've seen this story. Drugs and the belly up record. Right. It's like on the edge all the time. It's like, yeah, that's what how many that, more times can you tell this story? <laughs> that's what was going on. I mean, he, well, uh, there wasn't the, the drugs. Well, I don't know about the drugs, right. but all I know is he took off to, uh, California and and left a parcel of debt. But we ended up finding two investors that were sort of good friends of ours who bought the whole shebang for like twelve grand at auction, which wow. is the whole thing. And uh, and we started doing we were doing records, but then we started to move over into um, uh, audio production and post production means radio doing radio commercials radio programming those type things and and we were also right on the very beginning edge of uh doing sound interlocked with video at the time mm. so i stuck it with them and was were with was with them for with uh, my two partners there for gosh 30 plus years oh wow so, yeah but it's kind of one of those things that uh um i was so blessed to love my work and that is so important. You know, it can carry you through so much disappointment and it can carry you through the long hours and it can carry you through all those really difficult moments with a career uh, if you have that love and that passion for it. Mm -hmm. you know? I was on a shoot once and we were having dinner after a long shoot and everyone went around the table. Somebody sparked it of saying, like, why do you like doing this? You know, what's what makes you crazy and want to do this kind of production stuff? And somebody pointed out an interesting thing that you have access to people and to places that you wouldn't have otherwise access to. So, f for example, behind the stage at a theater or something like that, you, you feel like you're part of something. And then my answer was, I just love any aspect of production. doesn't matter what it is, if it's corporate video, if it's whatever, I, I just enjoy the process. And then I realized, well, that's kind of a lie. <laughs> right because i like it until i do it too much and then i want to do something else so for example i do like production a lot but i when i when i do too much corporate video i get a yearning to do a pet project or i get a yearning to do something else that's a little bit more creative and then you know you got to pay the bills so you you know you, at some point you like to do corporate work because you want to pay the bills what is your take on that in terms of because um, I know you, you're it, right now in the middle of doing, and I don't want to jump um, in chronological order too too uh, forward, but you're in the middle of do election season and doing a lot of spots for, for candidates. But how do you strike that balance? The work we do within sort of production, because we're both in production, really has a wide range of stuff. So if you're over here to the left, you know, and you're focusing on this, uh, forever and it gets a little boring, you still have all the stuff to the right that you can go to and try and, and, and become good at or, you know, develop those skills. So you end up with this nice wide sort of uh, um, palette of things you can do. It's like my, my son's an actor and I said, don't just 
um, you know, and he, he's become pretty pretty diverse in terms. I said, don't just say I'm just going to be a Shakespearean stage actor. No, BA voiceover talent, BA, you know, BA a corporate sponsor, be a corporate spokesman, be a you know, there are all those things you can do. And if you if you widen out your vision of what you're capable of doing, it gives you that that many choices. So so that that sort of variety of work within the discipline or within the craft, you know, was one thing that kept me going. It was always different as it came through the door, you know. And even from the little stuff, like if you're stuck doing the same thing over and over again, I would sometimes force myself to find what's the challenge within this small job. You know, it might be changing the way the the this particular person sounds you know does he have a, a, a heavy you know a lisp or and uh, or, or, or some aspect that he needs fixing you know so I could focus in on that but the other thing that drove it for me is technology even when I think when I was really young I loved taking stuff apart and and I think and I love seeing how things worked and interrelated and gosh I couldn't be in a better field you know, to, to have watched technology grow. And, uh, you know, there's so, there, there's so many uh, times that people say, oh, I, I, I really, uh, I really want to go back to the old days. No way, man. The tools that are available today are so awesome, mm -hmm. so phenomenal. Well, it's interesting that you brought up technology because I, I see you, and I'm not trying to inflate your ego, but I see you as a, a creative person that has just this, you know, over the years of, of experience and just knowledge that you've accumulated and uh, just an ocean of technical knowledge and, and know-how. Um, my question is though, and this is something that, that is kind of a pet peeve of mine is that there's, there's a certain idea that, you know, well, there's the technical side, there's the gearhead that knows that, what, what information to call up on the computer. That's yeah, that's technical. Um, what I do is creative. I have all the ideas in my head, you know, and and I and I agree that there are extremes. I agree that there are creative artists that have visions that way beyond what I could ever come up with. Um, and there are technical engineers and people that I could never understand their mind. But I, I feel like without one, the other can't really exist in a certain way. Do you? What's your comment on that? I think of myself uh, foremost as a as a creative person, as as a as a designer, as a creator, and I use uh, technology as my tools to net what I hear in my head. Is basically how it works. I hear it and then I try to create it. Those sort of things. So so I strike kind of a balance between those. Yeah, there uh, I have known plenty of technical engineers who are horrible creative types and and way out on the other end I've met the I met creative types who have all the ideas in the world that are really good but are unable to bring to fruition anything so the neat thing about our jobs and 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 uh, the stuff we do is collaboration so a lot of times if you can get that creative type and match them up with 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 a uh, a um technical type and bring them together you can get a really powerful type of you know engine and it's kind of the thing that they have you have going on here at aim you know it's like is like you have some people that want to specialize in technically and some people that want to specialize creatively and you try to match those people up and do those mentoring programs and those those type things to really kind of 
kind of bring it, bring the product out because that's what it's about. We can talk about the show or we can talk about the product all day long, but unless you actually do it, like she actually take this podcast, edit it together, and get it out there. What are you doing? I mean, you know, you're just sitting around a bar talking about it. You know, you aren't really coming to terms with it. So meaning of that sort of creative and technical side, you know, you have people that can do both, and you have people who can't do both. And when you don't have people who can't do both, you get them together. One of the things I think I regret most about sort of where technology has pushed us is there's a sense of isolationism now. You know, I work out of my home. I mean, and I have a great studio uh, in my in my home, but I don't ever get to see anybody anymore. You know, back in the day when we had our recording studio, you, the client would always come to you, the talent would come to you. There'd always be back and forth interaction and stuff like that. And I really miss that. So much of the time it would, it would, you know, I'm talking to someone and I have these friendships, good friendships with people I see maybe once every year, maybe if I'm lucky, you know, but I talk to them almost every day. You know, now one lives in the upper Wisconsin, another one in Colorado. And the thing that I find has made me such a strong producer and te the technical know-how is that fact that I've worked at Arlington Independent Media for, for eight years somebody's in the edit room with a problem and I need to figure out what, what the answer is. So I've kind of seen everything in terms of certain, certain aspects of production, editing, shooting, certain cameras. And it's interesting that you bring that up because I'm in the process, I'm going to be going part-time. I don't know if you heard, starting April 1st, and I'm going to be working here part-time and do trying to pursue more freelance. And in that, that silo that you talked about is interesting because it is – as you really have to do your due diligence of keeping up with creative, maybe a viral community or something like that to really keep up with, with the technology. You've been working in your, your studio for a while, but now you've been very involved in Arlington Independent Media's moved into audio production with building the audio studio as well as the radio station. Can you talk a little bit about that experience? To me, it was sort of one of those uh, points in life, you know, where um, where I sort of um, was wondering what the next thing was going to be, you know, for me. I mean, certainly new software comes down. That's great. And I get over that in about a week and, you know, incorporate that. And I'm happy to use those tools. You know, and I was just con not concerned, but just wondering what, what would um, – you know, where am I, where am I going? You know, what's, what's the next thing for me? You know, and um, I, it was almost a fluke, you know, the, the, the story is all my, I'm downstairs working on a spot or a show. I can't remember exactly what it was. I hear the doorbell ring. You know, I go upstairs, answer the door and it's my neighbor down the street, Gene Kreider, who's the uh, owner of Cardinal Construction. And he poses the question to me, he goes, do you know anything about acoustics? And I went, well, a little bit, Gene. I mean, I've built a couple of rooms and this. He goes, oh, really? Well, I've got this little project down the street and they're, they're looking for some help there. And it was like, I'm like, well, sure, I'll meet with them. You know, and I remember the first meeting and it was like, holy mackerel. Well, here's what I'm meant to do. You know, here's <laughs> here's my next step. And, and it was sort of dropped into this environment where... 
you know, it was it was a great working team. You know, we had a great collaborative team, even from staff here at AIM. You know, on through on through the, uh, you know, architects and and everybody. And and uh, it was just that ability to use that aspect of experience that I had. You know, with acoustics and with with designing rooms. You know, because I had built, gosh, uh, a lot. I mean. <laughs> you know, a dozen, more than a dozen, you know, audio rooms from stuff to where we needed to put, you know, we had to add another room. And so here's a small eight by eight space. Let's build a room in an eight by eight space to, okay, you know, uh, let's build from scratch if you had an open plate. And that's kind of what we ended up here, here at AIM, you know. We had certain restrictions in terms of the building and things we could do and couldn't do, but but this whole creative process. And also, I really enjoyed the teaching and the learning process that was involved because a lot of it was new to you guys and a lot of what you did was new to me. And so that exchange of information and that that sort of learning really, really has been, it's been a wonderful journey which continues to go i mean you know we continue to add rooms a radio room and and uh, add classes you know and so the whole teaching thing for me has been uh, a great thing so aim uh, came along in my life at a wonderful point and it's been a great fit i know you as a very creative but also very much a hard worker so i i assume that you put 100 percent into everything that you do but if there was a project that you can look back on that was a pet project that you put some extra sweat, blood, and tears into that you can look back and say, that was, I'm really proud of that. Is, is there something that, that you can think of yeah, and talk about? Sure. I think the one, the one thing is my involvement, and this was back in the beginning in the 80s, was really being in, involved in the uh, nexus two things going on. One was the emerging of reality TV. Um, where I was the uh, I was the primary sound designer and mixer for America's Most Wanted, and I mixed the pilot on that show and and worked through over five hundred episodes of, of that particular program, and that uh, in and of itself was so cool to be a part of that process because we were making it up because before that. I think it was crime busters, crime solvers. There was very sort of news. It was sort of a news format, sort of bust a crime kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And the thing that America's Most Wanted did is they took each criminal and his acts and they made many movies. So instead of this news approach, they brought they they brought to bear a whole movie approach high production film using a lot of film scripting and all of that so we were really producing within a show the recreations were two to two to three mini movies so i was using foley effects i would be having to step on concrete and step on gravel and put all pull all those and using sounds of rubbing clothes and i was having to do extensive sound effect all the music was originally scored that we were using on the piece so it was cool. I mean, it was neat. It took a long time, and they didn't have much time to do it in, too. So it was a lot of late nights and, and those type things. With every episode, I mean, I knew from the very first episode we put on the air, they caught the criminal that day, the next day, David James Roberts. They featured him, and 
somebody watched the show goes, oh, he lives next I know door. That guy. <laughs> he lives next door to me. Dialed one eight hundred crime eighty eight, and boom. And once they caught him, off it, off, off it went. And and the the interesting thing about less less about the mechanics. That was, that was one of the first episodes. You mean that was the very first episode. Wow. So we did the trailer. And then they said, wow, we, I think we have something here. Holy mackerel, they did. <laughs> they caught the guy on the second episode, third episode, and suddenly they were netting result. And they went, okay, we've got a formula. Bad thing is, is when you catch a guy, the show isn't really good for a repeat. Mm-hmm. So from a from syndication, a syndication point, yeah. point of view, it was a difficult, difficult product. But I think the one other thing I wanted to... Uh, talk about is during that show and 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 because of this sort of thing of sort of reality TV because we were bringing a pseudo reality to it was experimenting and risk taking and those type things you know of really pushing the boundary of what you watch and listen to on TV and some of the stuff I, re- I remember one particular instance where um a uh, a criminal had i think hung his wife okay and so they did you know that the they the it's a pull away shot and you see you know you basically see the shadow of a body sort of swinging just very gently as it pulls back very sort of serious music going on and and as a sound designer i'm in there and i'm go okay a rope creak so just a little tiny rope creak in as the body swung in. Holy mackerel. Well, that aired. <laughs> <laughs> and we got some notes after that well, to yeah, say, you, back it down. Because, you need to back it down a little well, bit. Well, especially because right. I remember as a kid watching that show. Yeah, yeah. And it was on like after Simpsons or something Yeah, like no, that. it was, right. Um, and, and I would catch, and my parents let us watch it to a right. certain degree. Right. but and, it, and when you're... You know, young, you're not right. as interested as right. it is. But but it was. I remember it to be very quality programming. Well, it was. They were using. <clears throat> they were using a lot of LA people. They were using a lot of. Uh, you know, they were pulling out the pulling out the stops, and because they were catching people, the ratings were really good. And you know that show. Gosh, that show stayed on the air. So forever. many yeah. forever for so many years, and and uh, you know. Netted um, a lot of stuff, but um, the other part of the nexus I talked about earlier is really right during the time of that show was was from a technology point of view we were making the shift away from tape based recording mm-hmm. over to computer based recording and uh, uh, as a result of the show we were able to afford one of the first computer based mm. uh, recording and editing systems New England digital um, wow. system and it, that was just holy mackerel. That just changed the game totally. What you know? was it that changed the game? You could record well, more well, easily, or well, the thing the thing about tape based is if I wanted to put a gunshot in when the flash happened, just the work you had to go through to get the <laughs> sync to work yeah. was numbing. So. It, <laughs> I guess it's close to linear video editing then yeah. because that's something that – well, it is line, linear video editing. It is linear. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right, right, right. So uh, it's funny because we used to have – we're actually sitting right now where the linear edit suite used to used be. Used to be, right. And I came on just the right 
right time where I learned Final Cut Pro and I did like three edits on a linear suite. Right. I didn't have to go through that mess. <laughs> right. Well, certainly when compute, you know, when when um, um, nonlinear editing in the audio world came around, you know, you just click on the clip that represented the gun shop and move it two frames sooner or two frames later and suddenly yeah. your production is up, you know, 80%. You know, right. you were exactly. flying. You were yeah. flying. And, of course, the producers took full advantage of that and just dumped more work on you, you know, to <laughs> fill the void so it's not like you were getting out any earlier. So, right. so that was, for me, uh, that sort of the emergence of that kind of television production and, and uh, the real appreciation of sound for television, uh, audio sweetening. That was uh, sort of getting to ride that wave. It's interesting because... Um, this is something I talk about, and, and I've learned, I have to say, I've learned so much about audio working with you. But one thing I do tell my students a lot is you should think about it as about 50% of, of what you're doing in a film. Because I see a lot of independent films, they get the red camera, they spend all this money lighting and, and getting the acting all all great. And then there's two people in a bar, and there's two microphones for each actor, and then the silence and there's a it's a crowded bar but all you hear is these two people as if they're in a studio so it's like it, as i get older and as i watch that type of stuff i can really see where they've spent the money mm -hmm. and where the budget kind of ended at the post production because they didn't add any audio into it you talked about the the rope creek and how much of that really impacts and how deep you can go with the environmental stuff usually some of that is dictated by um time and money or time is money so it's like how long do I have to work on this <clears throat> usually for me um, you know if I've if the client wants you know they need this particular thing done in three hours I'll give I'll pack as much as I can do within three hours uh, you know I know that the narration needs to be solid because that sits at the top list so I'll work you know, I'll make sure that's good, but once that's done I move, move on to other things you know if I do my job well you don't notice it You'll experience it. You'll get more out of it, you know, if I do my job, if I do my job well, particularly that I'm not distracting you from something. So if there's an odd noise or something in it that takes you away from what's going on within the scene, whether it's just a, a talking head narrative or, or whatever, but if you're pulled out and then have to come back in, well, you just lost three seconds of content. And any sound designer will tell you this. They want everything to be nice and natural. But in, in a particular scene, I start from inside and work out. Mm -hmm. So it's like if you and I are sitting here talking at a table in a kitchen, maybe we're having coffee. So my next part of the onion would be what's going on on the table. Okay, then what's going on further out in the room? Is there a clock on the wall over here? Is there... You know, this going as a kid coming in and out or a dog scurrying left and right over here. You know, and then I take it one step further. Where are we? City? Suburb? Is a window open? Is it not? If you can't visually tell, well, you make it up. Okay, there is a window. So distant, distant left. You know, maybe if you're in a city... You know, little light horn beeping, or you know, <laughs> you're something. painting the picture for me. <laughs> you paint, you paint the picture. You know, right? You paint the picture, and so as you watch the image, you know, this just becomes natural fill-in and just draws you into the story more. I mean, one thing I used to do, too, just sort of a signature is, 
any exterior scene, I would always put my dog's bark in it. <laughs> so, you know, and it would be very distant and it would be producers never noticed, but it's very natural. You know, you do, you pull back and you have a wide, you know, suburban shot and you're a little, you know, a little bark in the distance. There's that whole thing where people don't know why they don't like something or don't know why they do like something more than the other. And it is kind of subconscious in that way where I've, I've read this um, advanced book on, you know, video editing and they, they call it mental hiccups. Mm-hmm. There's you'll watch a miscut. It's cut wrong. And the cut needs to be, you know, a frame over or two frames over or a second over. And they'll, someone will watch it and say, I don't like that. I don't know why, but I don't like it. But when you see it and it, and it works, you don't, you don't pay attention. Yeah. yeah. But I have a show on the air now, and I find it extremely difficult being on this side of the mic. <laughs> Can you talk about the show? Oh, the Smokehouse? Yeah. I mean, yeah. Well, we're, we've done one episode. <laughs> we've got another one ready, ready to go. I'm working with Jackie. And this is uh, a Jackie pet project, Steven on obviously. It. Through, right. that's going to air on the, the radio station. Yeah, it airs Friday nights at 8 o'clock. And, uh, yeah, no, you know, I've always loved to uh, cook and grill and smoke and, and those sort of things around the grill. I said, well, wouldn't it be great to do a show? You know, that was I was passionate about it. So follow my passion, you know, and so, so develop the show to try to uh, um, sort of bring those ideas to other people who maybe don't, or, you know, they only do hamburgers and hot dogs on their grill. And it's like, hey, there is a freaking huge world of other things you can do in your grill. And it's really tastes good. So it's sort of bringing some of that, bringing sort of that encouragement, encouragement to them. But uh, it's been uh, harder than I thought it would be, you know, to do. <laughs> Even after all of the years of experience. All the years of experience because there's, because I'm rarely on the producing side. I'm always on the production side. Mm-hmm. So there's so much work on the producing side. So you know, you're very, you're very natural in the way you're able to ask questions and things like that. But it seems when I get on this side of the microphone and have to ask the questions, my brain locks up. And and Jackie's been a great help in terms of in terms of trying to get through that. But it's also finding the time. Mm-hmm. You know, within since since I've got a paying job, it's trying to find the time to right. The well, time that's to funny because I, I tell people when I first started this podcast, the first episode I spent like ten to twelve hours editing it. It's like a half hour thing. And, I, you know, I was learning the technology to a certain degree. And it reached a point where I was like, I can't. This is extra extracurricular. I cannot spend 10 hours. This is extra credit work. <laughs> right. No, Not right. Spending out 10 hours. Right. Uh, but I figured out a way to kind of economize it and stuff like that. But going a little bit broader in terms of somebody, because there's plenty of people that want to get into, you know, music production. There was somebody on a couple of days ago who was talking about he, he works at a, um, a big distributor of equipment, DVG. Mm-hmm. And he was at some seminar where an individual was talking about people don't realize that the guy at the 930 club that's in the back that's running the board, how many years of experience and what he's how his mind is going during a show and how many things are, you know, it's not just bringing up the faders, you know, there's a lot that goes into it. So to get that to gain that knowledge what advice would you have for young people that want to get into to radio or, or audio production in general well um i i think and as the thing i saw in aim and 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 really embraced here begin here there's no uh less expensive way 
and 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 uh, uh, talent rich way to get your feet wet with the basic tools we use pro tools here that's an industry standard you can at least get going on those sort of things and a lot of it and we've talked about this in terms of people taking classes a lot of it is continue to pursue it so once you learn how to record it learn how to edit it and then start editing stuff you know uh, be one of those mentors sit in on a session edit for someone else and begin to develop your edit skills because once you can get over sort of that sort of technology hump of all that learning and begin to apply it and that becomes natural you think it and you do it um, the rest of work becomes easier and you're able to do more so if you come in through that door and you want to do a, a show on Crayola's on the radio, which would be a challenge, you know, um, be passionate about it. Find the people to help you learn it yourself and get the show done. And once you finish the first show, move on to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next. Cool. Well, thanks for coming on the show, Jim. Sure, Devin. It's been great. The show is recorded at Arlington Independent Media or AIM. Check out arlingtonmedia.org for more info. This is Devin Gallagher, host of Media on the Radio. And thanks for listening.